Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Well, buddy, we just had on Warren Coco. That was fun. He got to go on real good for us. He's one of my favorite people to talk to, and you can tell it when you you know, hear me talking to him because he, he's so knowledgeable, um, yet he's, he hunts and fishes and I've been able to do both with him. And I mean, he's just, he's in our category of the world of things in this world. He's, he, he's the real deal. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, innovative entrepreneur, business owner, landowner, conservationist, just so many things. And just, uh, I could sit there and, and sit by a fire and perhaps have a have a cold beverage and listen to that fella for a real long time. So I really appreciate it. I'm glad you brought him on, and I'm glad it uh, can lend a voice to the conservation work there in the Delta. Yeah, I mean, he you know, he knows that Delta like the back of his hand, so hopefully some of those stories will uh, help some people other places understand what's going on down there and, and maybe help us out at some point in the future. Yeah, for our listeners, we covered conservation in the Mississippi River Delta. We covered the the history, the flooding, the land changes. We covered Go Devil, the business, and how he got that started, and how he innovated and and just took that and just ran with it. And now he's got a successful business down there, and uh, how he's done some of his own you know land improvement there on his own properties, and then the origin stories of that Duckman of Louisiana. I thought that was pretty cool, and and we maybe can dig that up and get that in the show notes. Hey, absolutely. I mean, that to me, that's probably the best duck video. And I, a couple of weeks ago when we were in Stuttgart, you remember mentioning that to Jim Ronquist, and he said, yep, and that's a man that makes duck hunting television. And, I mean, it, it's uh, it set the stage for every good duck video ever since. I love it. I, I Again, I just – I can't thank you enough because I keep learning about these just iconic folks and places and, and, you know, the duck lore that you've brought me into, uh, just getting to know you and, uh, 
and and bring into this podcast. So just thank you for that. Well, no problem. We'll have turkeys and fish and all kinds of stuff coming up. So, well, awesome. I hope folks uh, enjoyed this one. Check it out. Uh, enjoy the listen and uh, take it away with uh, Warren Coco. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. Aaron Kindle and Bill Cooksey here. How's it going, buddy? It's all good, man. All good. Glad to be through the holidays and moving on with the new year. Awesome. Well, we'll talk a little bit about what we've been doing while we were in respite. But uh, first, I'm going to let you introduce your buddy here that we got today as a guest. And we're, we're lucky to have him and appreciate him coming. Well, absolutely. Um, today we have Warren Coco, and Coco, I've known him for about 20 years, but I first became aware of him, I think, about 1986 when a video came out, um, and then was privileged to meet him a few years later. But Coco started Go Double Manufacturers in Louisiana in 1977. He had $1,000 and a concept that soldiers had brought back from Vietnam. Uh, the idea and the boats and motors that followed changed duck hunting. I mean, these things changed where we could go, how we could get there. Um, it changed everything. And today, Go Devil has over 40,000 square feet of manufacturing facility, 30 employees, and they produce over 1,800 engines a year. Um, Coco's contributions to hunting, though, didn't end with boats and motors. You know, a lot of people just make their stuff and make their money and go hunting. Um uh, he had been watching as the coastal Louisiana washed away. His timber died from the altered hydrology, um, watched invasive species take over uh, great waterfowl areas. So he got involved with his voice, his wallet, and his personal time. So, Coco, we're glad to have you on the show today, man. Glad to be here, man. It's, just, it's an honor to be asked to do this. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, thanks for coming. And I should say, too, uh, Bill, because I this really stuck out to me when I when I started looking up this fella, and, and learning about him, is is some of the stuff he's done with DU and conservation, and we can get into that a little bit. But you know he he's a he's a great DU volunteer too, and just really has uh, really committed himself to waterfowl in your neck of the woods, and and I uh, or your neck of the woods, I guess you're in Tennessee, but the place you work, and and I got to see a little bit of your world not that long ago and, and was impressed by all the folks, you know, and all the good conservation happening down there. And I just like seeing, learning more and understanding more. And this is yet another, another finger into your world there. So I appreciate that. And, and Coco, well, if, if you don't mind, I'll call you Coco. Bill keeps calling you Coco. So I guess that's what we do. But, uh, I, I, that's, a, that's a good name. <laughs> okay. It is. I like it. What we do here, we always, uh, we always kick it off with what we've been doing outside and, and we'll ask you first because this is a podcast about being outside and hunting and fishing and conservation. So just give us a little flavor of how you've spent your time outside lately. Well, every weekend I'm somewhere, but not here, not at home. I'm either, I'm, you know, I've been very, very fortunate. I've worked hard, been successful and I've been able to buy hunting property. And, uh, 
got two great places that I hunt and one I hunt and fish on. One is in the coastal marsh of southwest Louisiana near Hackberry, right in the southwest corner of the state. And then another place I own interest in is a cotton and soybean farm up on Red River and Black River. It's east central Louisiana. Just about every weekend I'm at one place or the other. You know, and, and I, after buying the first place, you know, stayed pretty busy getting everything set up, moving to camp in, getting all that set up. And then that was in 99. And 2001, this other place came up for sale. A friend of mine found out about it, told me about it. I wasn't really looking to buy another place. And I said, man, I, he showed me pictures of it. I said, man, I'd like to go look at this. He said, you think you might be interested? I said, I might be. I said, I want to look at it. He said, well, I'll keep a spot open for you. We rode up there and went and looked at it. When I saw it, I said, don't let this get away. We've got to have this. And what it was, it's, it's a peninsula where the red and black come together. And it's a, we got 22, we're up to 2,200 acres now. We own the whole point except for one little corner. And when I saw the place, you know, I said, this place got some potential. But it didn't have, I, know, I didn't have a, a clue to what was going to happen after I got it and all the work I did and what I learned from having this piece of property and worked it. But the first thing I had to do is I went and bought a long reach excavator and started cleaning ditches. Then I started putting in structures and then I started doing this and then researching what I need to plant, how I need to do this. And I got had a few biologists come down, guys I know with wildlife and fisheries, had a big oxbow lake on it. With five foot of water full of hydrilla, we got permit and drained it. Now it's a moist soil unit slash duck hole slash crawfish pond. And it's one of our, it's one of our biggest duck holes. It's about 50 acres, just that one one hole right there on the old 2200 acre place. It's just a natural oxbow, shallow oxbow. And, uh, you know, we, can, we manage it for ducks. And, and the place is actually a working cotton and soybean farm. And then we got half of it is in agriculture, and then the other half is in woods, water, and everything on it drains. I can drain everything and dry it up, plant stuff on it, but all that's changed. Everything evolves and changes. Nothing stays the same. I've been saying that for years. When we bought the place, we had 10 deer on it. In 04, in fact, I was at Cooksey in Stuttgart shooting video with Fred Zink, and I was telling Zink about the place. I said, man, we bought this place. I said, we can't kill enough ducks to make a gravy. And this was in 023, you know, four. And uh, I said, I ain't never seen a place pretty in this. I said, well, we can't kill anything. But it was bad years. I wasn't doing much in Hackberry at that time. And he told me, he said, you need to plant corn, corn, more corn. So I went by a tractor. I already had a tractor. I went by a big tractor, and I started planting corn. Everything changed, and I did that. Well, now as things have evolved, I can't plant a piece of corn. Yeah, there wasn't 10 deer on the place when we bought it. Now I got so many deer, I can't plant corn because they eat it all. You know, it just, that doesn't work anymore. And then the hog showed up, and then the bear showed up. Well, that's just, you just got to deal with it. You just got to move on to something else. And we've been in a drought, not a drought, a flood situation the last several years with the rainfall. Well, we're hunting ducks. We're down in mud holes trying to farm stuff, and it's hard. You can't plant crops like corn and things like that when it's too wet. Well, we hopefully get back into a drier mode now. But, you know, we've been doing more, a lot of moist soil stuff and then planting some millet. But I need, and I got a little bit of ground I can plant some other stuff on. But I've kind of moved away from that. I did a lot of work on that place and kind of backed off of it. We got a guy hired full time now, but I'm still heavily involved in it. 
But, you know, that's part of what I do. But every weekend I'm at one place or the other. And now my fishing is so good at my place in Hackberry. My bass fishing is phenomenal. I mean, you know, last year I started recording what we were catching March 28th. By the 30th week of December, we broke 2,000. And we heavily manage it for the fish. And uh, what I do, my rule is everything over 14 inches goes back in the water. You keep a limit of 10 fish, and that's all you're going to keep. You know, you know, 10 fish a day. We have plenty, plenty of fish, but we don't take the big ones out. And before I did all the work on it, I did a big wetland restoration project on it. And before I did that, we never caught a fish weighed three pounds. Now we're throwing back six pound fish from all the excavation I did. Now, Coco, you're telling me you've been fishing during duck season instead of duck hunting in Louisiana. Yeah, we don't have any ducks. <laughs> it, it was 80 degrees <laughs> we, we, we just not, they hadn't got here yet now i think they just shut some of them showed up on our farm i'm going there this weekend but uh we hadn't had i mean the hunting has been very very poor now there's people in louisiana killing ducks with this in spots you got you know they're killing them here they're killing them here and they're killing them here but they're not they're not everywhere there's just not enough ducks to go around when zinc came down TV show for DU uh, week for, weekend for Christmas. And he told me, he said, in Ohio where he hunts, he said any day they get to hunt in December is a blessing because generally they're locked up. They hunted last several years. They've hunted all the way to the end, and this year they shot a limit most every hunt they hunted. In fact, his son was hunting that weekend. That was their last weekend, the weekend for Christmas. And they all shot limits. And, you know, we don't have anything to shoot. They just... I talked to uh, another guy, a friend of mine, who knew a guy in Illinois. He's got a big farm up there. And this guy's retired from Caterpillar. He's way up in Caterpillar and had a big place. And sent him a video, and, and my friend sent me the video. He said, he's holding 100,000 ducks. And this was three weeks wow. ago. No, they're, they're just, you know, that's what we used to have. But the weather's got to get cold above us. But I've always said in Cameron Parish, where my place is in Hackberry, I have killed more ducks fighting mosquitoes and I have ice because it, it, you know, we don't get that cold in South Louisiana, but it's got to get cold down at Arkansas line for us to have a lot of ducks. You, know, you need me to up. be cold. You What's need that? me right. You need me to be cold. right? I need, I need you locked up and I'm going to have your yeah. ducks. I'm not close to it. Yeah. In 83, what I call the big ice, it, everything locked up everywhere. We had every duck in the country. It thawed out. They all left. It froze. That was for Christmas. Then it froze again for New Year's, and it all came back. And it was phenomenal. And then 89, I called the big, big ice. It got colder. It got down like 8 degrees. And, and I saw things we'd never seen before. I saw 4,000 light in the hole. It took 20 minutes for them to get in there. We wouldn't shoot. We just a couple hundred, 200 and a bunch, and they just kept coming and coming and coming. And we hadn't seen things like that in years, but it hadn't gotten cold. You know, it's just – we're in a warm stretch. How long it's gonna last? Who knows? I just hope it get. I hope it's gone. I mean, this 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 isn't good for us. Yeah, but it's, I don't think it's really good for any of us. No, uh, no. Other than a few people in the northern tier, but we don't need the Great Lakes to be winter in mallards. No, no, not, not especially. But I got. I don't, from, think, uh, I, got from I don't think we're doing anything as cool as you either. I don't know if our outside adventures are, are, are quite as involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I get customers call me and say, do you duck hunt? I said, 
I think so. I said, I think you would call it that. I said, uh, and Bill's been in my place and seen all the equipment and everything I have. Uh, I made a statement one day. I, I, bought it, I bought a big marsh buggy excavator. The thing weighs 60,000 pounds, take a state police escort to move it. And that's what I had to have do all my work in uh, Cameron in my project. I said, he who dies with the most duck hunting toys wins second place. He who dies with the biggest wins first. I got first and second covered. <laughs> Coco, let, let's back up a little bit and talk about Go Devil. Um, how that thing got started. I mean, I talked a little bit about it, but 77, you know, seems like a long time ago. But uh, It was. It was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, but nobody had ever seen anything like this. I mean, how'd you get going? No one had ever seen it. I got a friend of mine that joined a club called American Sportsman Club, and it was a nationwide deal. You joined, and it was $1,000 joined, $1,000 a year. So the first year was $2,000. Well, I wasn't making my $5 an hour at the time as a mechanic working at Climb Peter Dairy, and I was hunting down the river, past the loo at the mouth of the river, sleeping in a tent in the mud. He wanted me to come hunt with him. I said, yeah, 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 okay, okay, I'm going to come. Man, I got this funny-looking engine over there. I want you to build me one. I said, man, what are you talking about? He said, well, somebody was in Vietnam, saw this, came back, built one, and somebody else saw it and built one. So I want you to build me one. And he described it to me. I said, man, you're out of your mind. He said, no, I want you to see it. So we went over there, went hunting. We come back out. We stopped in this boat shed. And walked up on it. I looked at this thing, and I about fell on the ground laughing. I was laughing so hard. And it was old, about 1950. Breaking strat the engine, cast iron engine had a wrap of rope on a pull start. It was on about a 1950 avenue bracket. It had a rubber hose in the bottom for a baron and a U joint at the top. It had a little prop like we put. I built several little mud boats, inboard boats, same type engine, propeller. And I was very familiar with propellers and shafts. And that's why he, he, he knew that. And I saw this thing and I laughed. I said, Man, you out of your mind. I said, oh, no, man, that thing will go, man. It works. I said, Oh, uh-huh, yeah, okay. Man, my wheels went to rolling. I got to thinking about it. And I started scrounging up all my parts and junk, and I built the first one. And I was so shocked. I said, I'm fixing to quit my job and start building these. There's a market for this. That's, there's a big market for this. And that's what I did. Uh, and I kept working at the dairy, started developing, improving. My second version was a lot closer to what we're building now. The first one weighed about 300 pounds. It was the wrong engine, but it was what I had. The old Cola cast iron engine with a starter generator on it was the weight of a starter on a V8 Chevrolet. And, uh, and then the engine was cast iron. We started out aluminum block engines, and that's all we're using now. But the engines, have, everything has evolved so much in the past 45 years. The first year, everything was was cut. All the parts were cut with a cutting torch, ground with a side grinder, hanging out in the back of a truck in the yard. You know, we had a little old building behind my, my business partner's parents house where we started we worked there for two years and came to this location and built a 1500 square foot building and through the years added on added on 95 my partner was ready to move on i bought him out and then business shot through the roof we come off of a three duck limit went to a five and six duck limit business increased like 63 percent the year he was before he left year 11 increased like 65 percent i mean we were, we were flying in and, and, you know, I, I was looking back, I was cleaning up my office uh, 
two weekends ago and I found some old record books where I kept ledgers, you know, checkbook ledgers and all that. And I, and I, I put, pulled it up looking at that and I showed my daughter. I said, look, I want you to see this. 1979, my partner, he was part-time. He had a full-time job. He just worked part-time. His salary was $36 in 1979. Mine was 3000 That's all the money we took out of the business. And that's what was able me to get started. All the money went back in the business. But I was still living at home with my parents. Had no kids, no family, you know, didn't have any bills. And that, that enabled me to get started without long. I never had a bank loan. No, we started this thing with nothing and, and, and made it work. And then he came on full-time and we were able to start drawing paycheck and then i got married and he eventually got married and then you know things moved on things grew and then it grew to what it is now and just now it's more people more headaches and more things to do you know first year of sales my gross sales was twenty four thousand dollars man I, I i cut a big hog at that point i ain't never seen that kind of money we sell boats that's more than that, more for more than that now, and they ain't even got a steering wheel on it. Put a steering wheel on it, you just added more money to it. <laughs> the things have really changed. I mean, early on, it was the long shaft go double. That's correct. We started with the long tail engine, and then as times progress, you know, I had I always had competition after I started. You know, competition is kind of a form of flattery. When somebody's copying you, you're doing something right, and then then the you know, other competitors. Semi-competitive started building surface drives, which we built our version of that, and we're all in the market for that. And that's where a lot of the market has gone. But we do still sell a lot of long tail engines. Surface drive is great if you get on plane and run. If it's so bad, you got a bump and grind, you need a long tail go double. That's the only thing that's going to go. Help, help a help a dry land high elevation fella out here, because I don't I don't know how these engines work. Maybe give me a little. Give me a little, you know, tutorial on exactly what we're talking about here. What was the difference between what was being used before and well, then what you started doing? Well, most people were using, just using outboard motors, and they got to the point they couldn't go no more. They were on foot. Yeah. Now, down here in South Louisiana, we, it's shallow water everywhere. You don't go anywhere. You don't duck hunting four feet of water down here. There's no ducks in four feet of water. There's shallow water. So before the go devil, we pushed the P-Rock, you know, small pointed boat point on both ends and we that's how we hunted we went on a larger boat threw the pierogs overboard took off in that and that's how we went hunting now that was a poor man's way to hunt now the, the people the wealthy people had mud boats now what a true mud boat is and i own one of them too i got a 20 foot boat four and a half foot bottom with a 400 small block shoveling engine it'll carry nine men 45 miles an hour but owning a mud boat is like owning an airboat it's like owning a race car B-O-A-T, in that respect, stands for breakout another thousand. And that's what it called. It's just very expensive to operate, <laughs> maintain, and keep running. So in South Louisiana, where a lot of people were running these mud boats, hunting, carrying multiple people, dropping off the blinds. So if that boat breaks down, you're dead in the water. When, when, when I came over the long tail go double, my version of it, they could take my engine and put on any flat bottom aluminum boat for at that time, less than a thousand dollars, put it on there, and then they had a boat to go hunting with. You know, without all the expense, trouble, fuel, maintenance, you know, much less. It, it, it put, it made, it got everybody into a boat that could take them hunting at that time instead of paddling or pushing, and it just opened the whole world up for everybody. And then what most people didn't realize, and I saw this potential right on, 
This thing won't just work here. This thing will work anywhere. It'll work in a rocky river. It'll work in the swamp, in the stumps, in the logs. See, a mud boat couldn't get out of the marsh. It, it couldn't run with stumps and logs because it was inboard. The prop was underneath. And if you hit something with that big propeller in that engine, something was going to break. I mean, it, it couldn't take the lick. Well, when the Godel hits something, it's balanced. Well, it just kicks up, flies up in the air, keeps going. It drops back in the water. It never checks up. So it just keeps on going. So, But in time, we started with little brass propellers that Michigan Propeller made. They had to develop better propellers. I designed and built stainless steel propellers, my own design, which that, like everything else, you know, copycats is a form of flattery. All that's been copied. You see everybody's propellers on a long term. It's all copied from mine. That's, they made off of mine. And it's just things that I learned on my own to develop and design and build. And, and you know, and like I said, we started with long tail and then other competitors started building their version of circuit drive and we built our version. Now we've developed that and we're all basically building similar type products, which, you know, my circuit drive has got a horizontal shaft engine, it's a belt drive. You can buy it non-reverse, you can buy it with reverse and, and you know, we sell electric trim without electric trim. We can put it in a boat with steering, hydraulic steering, and that's when it gets expensive. But like these older guys, they don't want to drive anything tiller. They want something they can sit down and be comfortable. Well, you, you got to have the right application for that rig. In other words, if you're in a bad swamp where you got a bump and grind, you can't run a steering wheel. You can't move it quick enough. You need something that's a tiller steer. So we got we offer so many different varieties of engines, horsepower sizes, and models of engines that we we can fill just about anybody's needs. And we even built some bigger boats. The biggest I've built was a 72-inch bottom, 24-foot long with 240 horsepower with the center console. That boat ran 31 miles an hour. The three of us in the deep water shut one engine off, trimmed it up. It ran 19 miles an hour, one engine. You know, the, the engines we have now are so powerful. 40-horsepower fuel-injected engine is a very strong engine. And, you know, it's just... Everything has totally changed from when we started. And, and the big change came in 88 when Briggs and Stratton went to building the V-twin Vanguard engine that is our flagship now. You know, at that time, it started with a 16, went to an 18, then they built a 20, then a 23, then a 31, now 35, and now 40. And that, that has really changed our business, the quality of the engines that we're able to buy. You know, and that's, that's it's just help business all around, you know, having better engines. Okay. I'll, I got to ask one more thing, Bill. I know we're, yeah, I know we're jumping to the, the conservation part of this cause that's what we do. But what about the name, the name, where did that come up with? Where'd you come up with go devil? It goes like a devil. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty simple and sweet. I like it. There was actually a battalion in Vietnam. They called the go devils, you know, and, and this is a name that I, I, when I saw it, it was a homemade product built in the backyard, and they call it a go devil. So I just kept with the same mm. name, you know. And, and I say it goes like the devil. And there's a Jeep engine called the Go Devil. If you Google Go Devil, you'll see Jeep engines. You'll see all field equipment that goes through a pipe called the Go Devil. But but most people, you know, when, when they say Go Devil, they're looking at my product. It's kind of like Coca Cola. It can be a homemade one. Or another copycat, and a lot of people gonna still gonna call it Go Devil. Like say, give me a Coke. You know, it might be a Pepsi, but they, they give me a Coke. We like Coca Cola. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, a friend of mine that I hunt with the other day literally said, when this motor gives out and it's about to, I'm going to get me one of those homemade go devils. I said, there's no such thing. <laughs> Warren Coco makes go devils. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, as you said, the Band-Aid or Coca-Cola. Uh, I, I've got to ask about this, Coco, because, you know, this is when I first saw you in, in the mid eighties, you worked with another fellow on a duck video that was game changing in that field. How in the world did the Duckman of Louisiana come about? I mean, and, and did it change things in, in your business world? Not, not so much in my business world, but it, 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 it changed things when, when I would go to a show and somebody would see me after they saw that video and I had to start signing autographs and all this. And, uh, you know, it's like when people call here, if they got an engine issue, I'm the guy they talk to. I said, man, I didn't know I was going to talk to you. I said, who do you think you was going to talk to? I said, ain't nobody help you better than I can. I said, I got all the answers. You know, but we, uh, you know, I had in, when we lost the lease we had in Hackberry back in the seventies while I was hunting while started my business. We're hunting there, lost that lease. Fact, we fought over that duck lease in court. We left there with our tail between the legs and, and my buddy I was hunting with, Jimmy Nugent, he said, That's all right, we're gonna hunt back over here one day. Well, needless to say, I bought the best place over there twenty years later. But anyway, we were uh, and, you know, we were out of a place to hunt. So he got on the hunt and said, We're gonna find another place to hunt. So he he started searching and calling and working on it, and we did find another place in the marsh. And then I know a few people have been hunting in the swamp down at Marpaw. And uh, got to, uh, looking around down there. And I, I can remember driving before I-10 was open. You had to get off interstate, go down the airline highway to Laplace, and get back on I-10. That part going across that swamp wasn't open yet. We were going through Reserve, Louisiana. They had a boat launch, a Reserve Canal that went right in the heart of that swamp. Went into Lake Marpaw. And I drive by there and I see them guys launching a boat right off the side of the road. There's them guys, crazy guys, going back here and shoot them wood ducks. I said, that's all I thought they had in them woods. Well, I, I was wrong. I, got, I ran into a guy who started selling product for me. He was telling about all the greenheads and the widgeons and the gadderalls. I said, man, you crazy. I don't know, man. We'll kill more gadderalls and widgeons the first split than we do mallards. So I went hunting with him and saw the hat. I said, man, I got to get in on some of this. So I was on the hunt. So I started inquiring, talking to him. And I had a lot of customers hunting down there. People buying my product, hunting down there. I knew a lot of guys. And I said, I'm going to find me a place to hunt down there. Well, when it was all said and done, I had over 10,000 acres leased or permission to hunt on. Three camps. I had two airboats, go devil boats, payrolls, everything I need in the world to hunt down there. I had hot and cold running water in every camp. I drilled a well at every one of them. You know, and, and two of them had to have an airboat to get to because in the middle of the swamp or go to get to them. But uh, anyway, I was down there and we had it was the, the hunting was phenomenal. I mean, I've hunted in Canada, I've been to Mexico. Nothing was as consistent as what I had down there. It was, it was unbelievable. And I called Robinson, Phil Robinson. I said, uh, man, you need to come hunting. And I knew him. had been blowing his calls. Met him. And we, in fact, we traveled all the way to Minnesota one time working shows. And I told him, man, you need to come hunting. We're killing ducks. And he's kind of like like I am now. He didn't want to travel too much. And he called me one day and said, man, you got any ducks? Said, yeah, I got ducks. He said, I got two guys from Texas. He said, we ain't got nothing over here. 
Because now y'all could say, can you tie? Like, yeah, come on. So I have plenty of, plenty of room. Come on. So they came, hunted. And uh, I dropped these two guys off. I said, you know, just shoot a limit. That's it. It's all no problem. So we went on passing, shot the boat off. He said, where's the decoy? I said, we don't need none. He looked at me kind of funny. He says, well, I said, we ain't need no decoys. I said, oh, man, I forgot my shotgun. He looked at me, and I told him, I said, well, we're going to take turns shooting. He looked at me like I had three heads when I said that. So we walked away from the boat about 100 yards, and we were standing there, and Gadwall started coming. He started calling in circle. Wide come over, pow, he killed one. Said, give me a gun. Took his gun from him. Kept calling, he come another, pow, I killed one. He killed one. I killed one. We killed 10, Limbo's five. We killed 10 Gadwalls. And they were in there like ants. I mean, there was as many as you'd ever want to see. It was all short timber. It was, was kind of open swamp. This is all cypress, tuple, gum, swamp, full of duckweed. Perfect habitat for gadwalls. And he says, man, we need to make a video. I said, we sure do. And this is the place to do it. So that's when we decided we're going to do that. So the next year, we got everything organized. Got a guy who went to church with him, oh, Gary Stevenson. They rented the cameras. This was all three-quarter inch cameras with tape deck. These, th- these cameras were 30 grand a piece. You didn't buy them, you rented them. So we rented the cameras, and that guy came. We had two cameramen running. The first trip they came, three days, it rained the whole three days. And one guy up in a deer stand in a tree off to the side. We were in the blind. One camera was behind us. We had a fair amount of ducks, and we, we being careful to only shoot, you know, what's – when the camera's on and all this, we got zero footage in three days. We didn't get anything. These guys were miserable. They weren't, they weren't waterfowl hunters. <laughs> they, they were people that used to, they used to shoot cameras in church. You know, that's it. So, you know, we didn't give up. So it came back the second trip. Then we got quite a bit of good footage. And in the third trip, we filmed 13 days over two hunting seasons to make that video. And most of it was filmed out of one blind, which we, we call Dooley's Blind. And that, and that, that blind is famous. If, if there was five ducks in Marpaw Swamp, only five, they were sitting in front of that blind. That's the first place they hit. It was, it was just a phenomenal spot. <laughs> but we, we hunted there, and, and we shot the video, and, and everybody saw it, and they were shocked. And they're still shocked when they get to see it because, you know, they made videos. You can ID every duck that's being shot on, on the video. And, and I'm going to tell you, I'm a fair shot, but when we made that video, I didn't miss. I I, I did not miss. You know, just, I was I was on. and But I was shooting an A5, sawed off with no choke, you know, and uh, shooting number six steel. And, you know, we, we 16 gauge, wasn't it? Made, made a great video. But uh, And then the three duck limit came the year after, and we couldn't have made the video. Then it would have been impossible, you know, because we had enough ducks. But you couldn't have shot enough ducks. You'd have you'd have filmed twenty five days to get the footage you would have been looking for. But we were fortunate we were able to do it, and it was that the hunting was at its best, and the hunting stayed good. And in eighty nine, when it froze, I was telling you, I saw four thousand light in the hole. It took twenty minutes when we get in there. This is the most wildest thing I ever seen in my life. And then it locked up and froze, and all the ducks, nothing was in the swamp at all in the barn. I got pictures of them. Phenomenal what you saw, and then when it thawed, they were all there. We had every duck in the country. It, it, it was unbelievable. And the hunting that year was good before the freeze, and it stayed good all the way to the end. And uh, 
but the hunting down there stayed good. It started tapering off in some places. What happened, the Salvina came in. We were draining boats one day, had them up on the bank, drained water out of them, and two of my hunting buddies that were there and sitting there on a the dry bank. I said, you see that stuff right there? I said, what's that? I said, Salvina. I said, that's going to run inside the swamp. And they didn't believe me. I said, that gets in the swamp, we're done. The next spring, they would gotten the swamp, and it covered everything. It overpowered the duckweed. Now it's the end of the duck hunting in Marpaw Swamp. Now it was 1998. Couldn't buy a duck. Done. It just, it, the primary food source in Marpaw Swamp was duckweed. And smartweed along the edges, a lot of people, it's called down here, we call it pepper grass. There's about three versions, which I would see up in your country uh, would be the purple, the Pennsylvania smartweed. What we had was what I call the small white, the swamp white small weed. There's another version that we have on our farm in some places, a large white. It's got a foul odor when you drive through it. But uh, but the primary food was the duckweed, and that's what they ate. And they get we get so many ducks, they would clean it up. If you go back and watch that video, first split, solid duckweed. Second split, it's gone. Ducks ate it all. They're coming in and eat every bit of it. And it just... And I told Robson, I said, in a way, if ducks ate all that, that's what I'm telling you. That's how many was here. They ate it all. And I've seen them. You know, they get in there and they'd eat it up. But when, when the food left, the ducks left. I mean, you don't go to a restaurant that don't serve food. Well, a duck ain't coming to a swamp that doesn't have food in it. And I'm talking several hundred thousand acres that, that was all changed, altered by vegetation change. And then... Once the salvina came in, then the floton came in, the floating mass of vegetation, with a, with a vegetation called fouchette. The proper name for it would be smooth burr marigold. Up north, they call it stuff beggar's ticks, uh, uh, stick tights. There's a little two-pronged sticker on a fly. It makes a yellow flower with a seed head in the middle of it. might have 100 seeds in it, and the ducks carried it in. I shot a green head one day. I picked him up. He had a knot on the back of his head. I said, what is this? And I look, in the center of one of those flowers. He gets on a duck. When he lands, he picks it off. It falls off in the water, and it, and it lays in the water. Nothing happens. Well, if the swamp dries, it germinates, sprouts, and grows like a cancer. And it just spreads, and it just keeps spreading and spreading. spreading. It covers. There's no more open water. It's all float on now. The whole swamp is that way, pretty much. <clears throat> and like I keep saying, the only thing you count on in duck hunting is change. Whatever you got is going to change, you know, unless you own it and can totally control what you can do with the water. Then then you can control things a lot better that way. That swamp was all privately owned. We were leasing it. And like I said, I had over 10,000 acres at one time with just about 95 to 98% of them now is all state-owned WMA. People have donated, bought it, sold it to us, gave it. They didn't sell it. They donated to the state for tax credits. And when they did that, they can retain the minerals. But they, there's no production, real production, all production on it. In Louisiana, you know, if you buy land, if they don't drill on it, the minerals revert to the new owner in 10 years. This is the only state that does that. So to retain it, but if you can sell land or donate to the state or federal government or the parish, y'all have counties, we have parishes, but you retain the minerals forever, and that's what was done. You know, they bought it, donated, got tax credit, tax write-off, whatever fault, but they still maintain the minerals at no cost. So, 
and I don't think there's anything that will come out of the ground there, but who knows? Maybe one day they may be getting something out of it. But it's real. It's a sad thing that that whole ecosystem changed like that because it was some of the finest duck hunting. Like I said, I've been to Canada, I've been to Mexico, and I've seen some great hunting in a lot of places, but nothing was better than what I had down there in them woods. It was phenomenal. Well, I, I know you've shown me pictures also and how the, the trees have changed well, over the last 30 years. What, what happens, you got cypress and Tupelo gone. What happens, nothing is draining. You know, years ago, the swamp would dry up in the summertime. Then they came in and dug different canals for drainage to drain the highland next to the river where the population's at, like at Gramercy and Garyville and Reserve. You, know, you got the river... Mississippi River comes down here, and wherever the river passes, your bank, your river bank is your highest ground. Now, as you get further and further out, it drops off and gets lower. And when you get away from the river, then you start having low-lying wetland swamp and swampy, you know, gum and cypress swamp. And what you got away from that, so, but it was all, wasn't much drainage in it, but it would dry up in the summertime. And see, when in the spring, those trees putting on leaves, they'll suck up 50 gallons a day apiece. That's sucking water up. Well, then they came in and dug all these canals, and now the tide water comes in and out, and they don't dry, the swamp doesn't dry up hardly anymore. Very seldom would it ever dry up. So those trees can't take the stress of that water. I didn't know what was happening, and they did a survey on the cypress trees when it was Lutchamore Timber Company. It wasn't cutting any timber. They finished cutting timber in 29. They did surveys of zero growth. Well, you know, we quit hunting there in 98 was the last year we had it. And then the state got it in, no, 99, 2000, the state got it. And I've got a picture of that blind where we filmed a duck man, absolute fabulous picture taken about 96 duckweed trees, are gorgeous, you know, gum trees all behind the blind. The blind was built on full of cypress trees. Went back there last year and I got a picture of it. All the gum trees are gone. They've died because it's too much stress from the water. What happens when you get water holding like that, the gum trees die and the cypress don't grow. I mean, that's what's happened. And the the the, uh, the diversion, the Hope Canal diversion, you know, a lot of these people are hoping that's going to save the swamp. Well, you know, I, I got different thoughts on that. Yeah, it needs to be done. It's going to be a grass, great asset for, for the land. But it's not going to do what people think it's going to do. It's, it, that muddy water from the river is the source of life, but it's a source of life for all undesirable vegetation. Also, I went to a meeting down there they were having on briefing everybody what was going on. And then I finally figured out what their goal is. The goal is to save the land bridge between Marlboro and Pontchartrain. To save that because if they lose that, the Gulf of Mexico is going to be in Baton Rouge. And we're trying to maintain that, that land bridge there, that piece of land, which is Manchac WMA, maintain that for, for storm surges. And by, by introducing this fresh water, it's going to lower the salinities. See, all that Marlboro area, well, that was all big cypress swamp, and they cut all the timber out of it. I'm not sure when that was cut, but it was early on because it was done with pull boats. And, uh, and they're trying to make they They've replanted cypress trees out there, and, and they – you know, but your salinity was too high at times. Well, now they've plugged the Mr. Go. That's the uh, ship channel that came from the Gulf into the Port of New Orleans. But once they plug that, now you got water hyacinths. Well, I never saw water hyacinths before because water hyacinths don't grow fresh water or branch marsh, 
just west of New Orleans Airport. That's all become fresh. It's not brackish anymore. And that's going to maintain that land for storm surges, you know, and, and, and that's the whole idea of that diversion is to save that land mass. Now, one thing that the diversion is going to do, fishing is fixing to big, pick up big time in that basin, in the Blind River Basin. The, the bass fishing and, and brim fishing, freshwater fishing is going to be through the roof once you start putting that river water in there. That's the source of life for everything. But the river is what formed all that land. All that swamp was formed by the river. I'll tell you about drilling those water wells. Every one of those water wells I drilled between 30 and 35 feet in the middle of the swamp, I'd hit freshwater clamshells. That was all freshwater lake bottom at one time. And then the river put sediments, clay sediments on top of that up above, and then the swamp was formed on top of that. And that was all your humus, and then your, your cypress and gum trees was on top of that. And then the, the trees that came in, they logged all the cypress out of there. Most of it started about the turn of the century, and much more was through in 1929. But the the you know, the environment had in my lifetime it hadn't changed much, but it, it is changing. Just like I said, the only thing you count on is change, and and that's that's what we're seeing everywhere we go in Louisiana. Things changing. Look, Coco, um, you've been a, a good friend to us. You know, we we push hard on on these sediment diversions and that sort of thing. Um, You've gone to Washington, D.C. with me. You've talked at public meetings and always been supportive. Let's talk for just a minute about some of the marsh loss you, you've seen with your own eyes and, and kind of where you are on some of that and some of that restoration. I'm very observant on what goes around my environment, where I go, where I hunt, where I fish, and I'm old enough. I've seen a lot. And I've met a lot of these old guys. And one of my best friends who died fell off Rufus Camp, broke his neck and died. He lived at the mouth of the river at Venice. And he started going down there in the 60s. And all that marsh was all floating marsh at that time when he started down there. He met a guy, got hooked up with who owned their family owned a bunch of land. Now this all bought us a Pasalu wildlife management area, which everybody's heard of. That's 66, was 66,000 acres at the mouth of the river. And just Above that was a privately owned land that their family owned, and then above that was Delta National Wildlife Refuge, and then above that was more private land, and you get private land on up. Well, he told me, one of the stories he told me, him and his friend Don were hunting, shooting neutrals. They didn't trap. They shot everything. He was down there trapping, and they shot neutrals. He's still on the island. This was in a refuge. You're walking and shooting neutrals, walking on the floats, and deer were getting up. And they kept shooting, they shoot neutrals. So they got to the end of the island. The deer herd came back on them. They counted 130 deer. Right now that island is a, is a water mass. It's number water, it's four foot of water. What happened, Betsy and Camille came through there and rolled all that floating mat up and took it. It was gone. You know, they just, it destroyed the marsh. She said one of those ponds, what we call sawdust, which is west of the wildlife fishers camp, big open pond where I fish, he used to fish catfish in it. They pumped a bunch, they, they did a big river diversion in it. And uh, he called it, said that was a crazy pond. He said, you go in there, and they, most of the time they hunted neutrals at night. They're shooting them with a light, and this was all legal at that time. This is back in the 60s. And they go in there, so you go in there at night, they said, where you go in, you might not be able to come out of. He said, they had float, floating islands with willow trees growing out of them that moved. And if the wind shifted, the islands may block off where you came in. 
a cut that you came in, you might not be able you have to go around another way out to get out. But he said those islands were long, they had willows growing out of them and had deer on some of them. That's how, and all that's gone. That, the, the, those storms took all that out because it couldn't withstand the hurricanes. But what I have seen change, one, you know, I, I love to bass fish and still do. And I started bass fishing down there. I think one of the first times I went was in the early 70s. And the guy who ran the camp for the wild fishers was telling me about catching bass down there. To, so on the seashore catching bass, I said, well, you can't catch bass down there. Salt water, it's on hope. It's all river water. It says bass up, up in the Gulf. And I have caught bass on the east side of the mouth of the river looking at the oil rigs, flip, flipping a, a worm up against water hops and catching bass. You know, we're fishing for redfish, and a guy was with me. Man, I just had a five-pound bass follow my, my bait up. We had fishing rubber cockahoe and a jig head for redfish. We put plastic worm on. We call them a bass, and we put our redfish baits back on. Went back fishing for redfish. But one of my best fishing spots was a pond, and you look at an older map, they, they printed a lot of uh, aerial photographs, and they named a lot of these ponds, and a lot of them were named after people who had found them. Back in the day when I started duck hunting down there, there wasn't a bass boat down there. There was a bass boat down there. There were no marinas. You had one boat launch to launch it. Nobody, it was an undiscovered treasure, that place down there, the fishing and everything. And uh one, play, one pond that we saw on the map went there to fish. It was near the seashore, all the way out the east end of the mouth of the river. It's called Mr. T's Pond. It's named after a guy. His name, he called himself Mr. T. Well, I met Mr. T one day. He had a, a big black mercury painted black, no decals on it. had a big white T on it. That was Mr. T. And we were in there fishing, and we were wearing them out. And he was scouting for a tournament he was going to fish. And me and my nephew and my boy, we were catching them. He said, Man, y'all gonna catch them all. So no, we ain't catching but a limit, and then we're gonna throw them back. <laughs> so we caught a limit of fish, and, and that was one of my favorite spots to fish. It was like four foot of water up against rose oak canes. And you flip that worm up against them canes, drop a bottle of it, and, and you're fishing. You never cast a bait, you just flipped it. Bouncing on the bottom, fish picking up, real upset the hook. And it, it was phenomenal. We caught so many fish and uh Right now, after the storms, that fishing hole is probably 600 yards out in the Gulf. It's gone. The seashore has washed back. The biggest thing I learned about that country, my friend who I was telling you about shooting the neutrals and the deer and the crazy ponds, he gave me a book to read. It's Muskrats of Louisiana, written by Ted O'Neill, who's a biologist with wild fishers. This book was written, I think, in 49. I got a copy. I went and bought a copy of it. He gave it to me to read. It gives a real good history of how everything was formed in the state of Louisiana. You know, Mississippi River's done changed course about five times. You got different deltas. He said the, the newest form delta is the fastest eroding, which is where the river is at now. And see, the river used to pass to the west. You know, they got different deltas. Got the Tesh Delta, and I don't remember the names of all of them. You know, the river used to go where the Chaflaya is. Right now, it, it broke off the Chaflaya because where it's at now was a shorter route. And as it grew, it kept depositing material. And the river kept growing and growing. Well, now it stopped growing. It can't grow anymore because it's at the continental shelf. You know, it'll be a 1,000, probably 10,000 years before it can grow any further. And what it's trying to do now, the shorter route to the Gulf is back down to Chaflaya. And that's where it's trying to go. Gravity's pulling it that way. And the 73 flood, which is the second highest flood on record, 
they almost lost that river, that the old river structure. They got a structure that diverts water from the Mississippi River into the Chafalaya River. And after the 73 flood, Congress passed a law that they had to adjust the river, adjust that lock. You take all the volume of water coming down the, the Red River, which she has several rivers coming in the You got the Beth Tensaw in the uh the Beth Tensaw and the Washita River come into the black and the black runs into the red. You take that river system and you take the Mississippi River system, combine that water, and you adjust those locks where you divert thirty percent down the Chaff Line, seventy percent down the Mississippi River. And and that's how they adjust the water flow. Well, the water all that's been altered, but what happened in seventy three it got so high and so strong, they almost lost that structure they built in, that big concrete structure. And they've done a lot more work to it. And, and you know, a lot of people, they, don't, they, they hadn't seen that. They hadn't seen what that river can do. It's phenomenal. You know, I can remember the 73 flood big time. And, and where our camp is up on Black River, the river, the, the land at the camp is 50 feet elevation. That's above sea level. The river got to 58 feet in 73. And it got to 62 feet in 27. You know, that was the big flood. It was a 27 flood. And, uh, but it's, you know, the, the river is what formed all this. And, and, and what's happened that, that, that is the newest form of Delta because it's still subsiding. And what I mean by subsiding is sinking. You know, those sediments dump and they settle, like compacting. And over time, and with the river, with the river dumping sediments, it's keep building and it's building sediments, it's keep putting more mud, and the mud settles. And those canes slow the water flow down, and the mud settles out in those canes, and that's what holds the land mass together. Well, my friend Jimmy, who I, I really respected and, and taught me a lot about that country down there, he said the mud stopped coming long after you know the mud came when they developed the turning plow and the midwest lost all its topsoil it came down the river and that formed a lot of that that's you know the a high river now you don't have the sediment volume coming down the river that you did 50 years ago you still got mud you still got sediments that can build land you still got sand coming with it but you don't have the volume that you had back in the day and then all the former practices no-till farming to slow the sediments down, which they needed to do that to lose all the topsoil. You know, one thing helps somebody somewhere, but it hurts somebody somewhere else. You know, it's, it's, it's just like, you know, there's a thousand subjects we can talk about, you know, about diversions, and, and you and I have talked about, you know, special interest groups and everything else. That's who you're fighting right now on that. I told you that when all this started. We'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, the, what's <laughs> happened... Core engineers is, is I'm gonna call them responsible. They're responsible for maintaining the, the river, the depth of the river for navigation. And and you know, we're not getting the mud we have, but we're still getting a lot of sediments. So they maintain the ship channel to keep everything open for navigation. So ships for commerce can come in up and down the river. Everybody that's listening to this podcast, I'm gonna suggest they go buy a book called The Rising Tide and they need to read it. It's, it's, it's a lot about what I'm talking about. It's a big history lesson about Louisiana and Mississippi, a lot in Mississippi, and and and, 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 and puts perspective on a lot of things. I never realized what cotton was worth till I read that book. The banks in New Orleans had more money than the, the banks in Chicago and New York combined, and it was all because of cotton. 
I never realized how important cotton was because back, way back, there was no such thing as synthetic material. It was all cotton. It was cotton or fur. That's all you had. You didn't have anything else. So cotton was as important as food to grow. And that, you know, that's part of what the Civil War was all about. And it, it was just, you know, cotton was just a very important resource we had to have. But that book goes into all that. It also goes into the river and the core engineers. And, and, and what really, really enticed me about the book, a lot of these places that were described, I done been there. I'd seen it all. You know, I'm very familiar with all the locations they were talking about. When they put willow mats in the river, the whole river open, the sky on the bottom. A very, very interesting book. And, and, and everybody should read it. But I have seen, you know, the things that have changed down there, how much the seashore has washed back because I fished down there. I quit duck hunting down there in 1977 because I got tired of fighting the river and the fog and the ships, and it's just dangerous. And then it's all public land, which I'm not crazy about that. But back when I started hunting there, there was nobody hunting there. Now you can't find a place to hunt because so many people hunting. Hunting it, and, you know, they just had a deal on, uh, you know, probably on news. There's so many people hunting down there. One guy... Some young kids got in his blind. This was on some public land. He goes out there and starts shooting the decoy with a pistol. They put him in jail. He got locked up, which they should have done that. But, uh, you know, it's just a fight for a place to hunt now. But, you know, unfortunately, I don't have to hunt down there. But the hunting in its heyday was phenomenal. That, that place, you know, Delta Duck was an old hunting club that's now where Delta National Wildlife Refuge is now. And uh, they hunted ducks down there back what that, that club i don't know how long ago that club was formed that was a big duck hunting club down there at that time but uh you know all that country they've lost so many so much marshland and down there it was rozo canes and water and you had flats where the duck potato grew and shallow flats but back Jimmy told me this, my friend that passed away. Benny Logan was was a manager of the wildlife management of Pasaloo. And he stayed down there. They worked like a week on, a week off. And he was a manager of the whole property. And after those storms came, he told the higher ups of wildlife and fisheries, you know, they lost so much land, so much marsh from the Betsy Camille taking the floats out. He said, the only way you're going to save this country is come down here and dynamite these pass bikes. And the reason he told them that, he would see when you get a high river, the river would broke over the bank and scour out a crevasse, is what they called it, and it would form and dump sediments in Villa Delta. Well, that is now called a diversion. Okay. They all thought he was crazy. He said, No, we don't need to do that. Oh, no, you need to come down here and blow these passages, just blow everything, just blow holes in everything. And that's the only way you're going to save this country. And that's what they're doing now. I can remember when the, some of the first diversions, like, they cut some into, uh, Raphael Pass that went into the refuge, and they cut one in the sawdust. That was some of the earth, and they cut some on South Pass, and they cut several of them. And then now they're cutting, trying to cut them everywhere, like the big mid barataria diversion. That's going to come in further above Venice, up between New Orleans and Venice, and cut into the barataria basin. And we had talked about this. That's what we went to Washington, D.C. You know, the court says, well, you know, if you pay us $10 million, we're going to give you the permit. We're going to speed it up. Then they say, well, it's going to be five years. Well, that's unacceptable. And that's what we went to Washington for. Well, but I knew that the fight was coming. That wasn't the fight. The fight was going to be the, the speckled trout fishermen, the shrimpers, the crabbers, and the oyster fishermen. The oyster fishermen was one of the biggest lobbyists in the state of Louisiana. You know, years ago, I 
I've made a statement. I said, you know, the coast has been washing away for years due to canals being dug for oil exploration, due to the river being channeled. The channelization of the river hurt us more than anything else because when the river would flood over and it would lower salinities and different vegetation would grow, it's dumping sediments and it's building land, it's nourishing the marshes and growing the marshes. When they channelized the river, that was the biggest threat to Louisiana's when that was done. And that was done in the name of flood control and navigation, which it needed to be done. But, you know, the thing, you got everything on the coast that deteriorating. You got saltwater intrusion in a lot of places, and that's what's caused a lot of it. But I think it's probably 30 years ago I said, I'll tell you how to fix the problems of coast Louisiana. I said, you give me the keys of the big monster, big monster being the Corps of Engineers. I said, I'm going to dig a canal from the Mississippi River to Texas. I'm going to open the intercoastal canal. We're going to put fresh water all the way across the state at High River. I said, but to do that, you got to tell all special interest groups to go to hell because you're going to be fighting everybody. You're going to fight every fisherman, every saltwater fisherman. You're going to fight every crabber. When, when I started going down the mouth of the river and about to go to high school in 1972, you come over the Empire Bridge, the big high bridge over Empire Canal where boats could pass on. It wasn't drawbridges. It was just a big tall bridge. It was solid marsh all the way to Gulf of Mexico, Schofield Bay. You drive over the bridge right now, it's solid water all the way out there. That's one of those fastest deteriorating marshlands because it was formed by the river. And it's all open water now. These guys are fishing oysters where their grandfather was trapped. Okay. They, the oyster fishermen is the largest, strongest lobbyists in the country. And that's who's fighting this diversion more than anything else. They got the uh, past president down there on this side. Now, that's what we want to do. We don't want this diversion. It's going to ruin the local economy. Well, they got a gulf there and they ain't going to be fishing oysters anymore. Oysters are going to be gone because oysters need brackish water. They don't thrive in salt water. They thrive in brackish water. They thrive in estuary. The estuary is where the fresh and the salt water mix. And when you put this diversion, you're going to change that. All that's going to change. And what's going to happen, people have to move. They're going to have to adjust that's part of saving what we got. If they do not do the diversion, gonna, your losses are going to get greater and greater and greater. And that's why we have to have this diversion. But there's, there's, this is an educational deal that y'all have taken on. You've got to educate people on why this needs to be done. And, and you know, these people have tunnel vision that are fishing here. The speckled trout fishermen, you know, this guy's got his camp here. This is where he fishes. This is what he's catching. And this Fresh water comes through here, it's going to change his fishing. Remember what I said about change? Everything changes, nothing stays the same. But, you know, back in the day, you know, where they're catching speckled trout now, they used to catch bass. Well, the animal bass is speckled trout now, saltwater fish. And, and But all that is the, the fresh water, if it's done right and monitored right, and that'll be another argument for another day for a lot of people, but when, where, and how much. You know, they put a lot of diversions on the east side of the river at Carnarvon. And a lot of people complain, well, it's all filled in. Ain't nothing but a willow hole over there. Well, with be a willow hole, it'd be six foot of water with nothing in it. You know, it wouldn't be no vegetation. Right. When we know it's zero habitat. You know, a, a mud flat with duck potato growing out of it is better than four feet of water for wildlife. Coco, before we run out of time, I, I want to move over to the southwest part of the state for a minute. Because, you know, you develop that property over there and not you put your money and your time where your mouth is for conservation. And that's also 
benefited other areas around you. Can you talk a little bit about Hackberry, what you did there and what the benefits have been for the whole area? When I bought that property, the marsh was pretty much brackish. You know, we caught bass there, but not like we're catching now. But the bass were there. The duck hunting was phenomenal. But right, all the country north of us was rice back then, back in the 70s. And I hunted the place I have now. I hunted as a guest. We started hunting at the other place. was 8,000 acres. That's the least we lost, fought over in court. The place I bought, I hunted there as a guest in the 70s. In 1979, in four days, we shot 100, 120 pintail drakes in four days on the same line. You realize how many gray ducks, tail, and everything else you got to pass up to kill 120 pintail drakes? That's when the limit was 10. So I said, man, you shot too many. No, we didn't shoot too many. The limit was 10. And, I mean, it was phenomenal. But all that country north of us was rice. Now, all that's changed. I keep talking about change. That rice has left that country because the production was low. Well, I bought the place in 99, and I knew there was a lot of room for improvement to help the place. But at the time we bought the place, you know, I mortgaged my house to buy that place. You know, it, I just had to have it. Buying that place was a chance of a thousand lifetimes. You know, when it came up for sale, we had an opportunity to buy it. We bought it. And I bought 70% interest. Now I own 80% of it. And I always wanted to enhance it and make it better. You know, I started looking and watching, seeing what Ducks Unlimited was doing a lot of places, building these terrace levees. Terrace levees, which you build in open water to slow the to, to to slow the turbidity down so the water can clear up so the UAV can grow, the underwater aquatic vegetation. And that's what you want to grow because that's your duck food. But what that also is, that's part of the ecosystem, part of the estuary that houses invertebrates, houses microorganisms that feed the minnows, that feed the fish, that feed the larger fish. It's all part of the food chain. And that's what the terrace levees do. Now I'm watching what they use doing in different places, coming these, these uh Trying to think of the right word. Not destroyed wetlands, but degraded wetlands. You know, with, with all that country over there was all fresh marsh until they came in and dug the, the Calcasieu Ship Channel and the Sabine Ship Channel. That brought in salt water. They didn't have a river over there like on the east side of the state. when it, They had the Calcasieu River and the Sabine River, but it's not the volume of water that came down to Mississippi. And they came in and dug those ship channels, and all that marsh over there was narrow blade cut grass. Well, that killed all the cut grass. So now where you had prairies of narrow blade cut grass is now open water. Because all the grading is getting deeper and deeper. Because what happens, you get your winds churn up your sediments, suspend your sediments, especially on the south wind for a cold front. Everything's churned up, suspended. It comes in the cold front, north wind, whoosh, there goes all your sediments out in the Gulf. And that's what was happening on this piece of property. But this piece of property is kind of unique. It's got a hard clay bottom beneath the humus, and it's not very far down. And it wasn't hard. You know, I figured out what I needed to do. I had some open water areas. I wanted to put some terraces in. But then I, what I wanted to do is come in and slow the tidal energy down. And that's what I did. I had cuts I blocked off and plugged off, but I put structures in them. And in my permit, I wrote, these structures are going to be open all year except for hunting season. I closed my outside flaps to let water out, won't let any water in on the south wind. So as hunting season over, open the flaps back up. I want the tidal energy. I want some salinity, but we're not getting it because it ain't quit raining for nine years. This was a brackish marsh, and now it's, we've got water houses in Salvina I'm having to contend with. But we, I can deal with that on this piece of property. 
Mud Pop Swamp, you couldn't nail with it. It was just too much. But uh, but the work I've done, I came in and I saw what I needed to do, and I bought the Marsh Buggy Excavator, which was a big chunk of money that I spent. And anybody that does a project like this is generally going to DU or the federal government looking for grants and funds to fund that project. I said, I ain't waiting for nobody. Bob Dew, director of development, was a biologist, turned into director of development for DU. When I, he kind of helped me with my permit, advised me a little bit, and helped me write it. And I did the, uh, had it all written up. And he said, look, if they don't call those terrace levies mitigation for that levy on the south side, so I get funding, I get a grant to build those terrace levies for you. At the time, I was 58 years old. I said, Bob, I ain't wait for y'all. Y'all take too long. I said, I won't get this done before I die. So I got permit. It took me three years with the Corps, fighting with the Corps. Finally got permit, got it done, got it all built, all completed, all finished. And DU gave me the uh, supply of the structures, the pipes, the flap gates for it. But I funded the rest of it. What they do now is like a 15% cost share. Well, I've paid way more than 15% of what I did because I did all the work myself. And, you know, the value of the work, we figured it was probably about $560,000. They supplied the structures, which I think was a value of about 34000 But I accomplished what I wanted to do. Everything came out fine, worked fine, and it's working fine. And it's really enhanced my product. Well, I had no vegetation growing. It's 100% vegetation now. It's all work. We just need cold weather to bring some ducks in. But it's all worked out for me and and. Then other people have seen other guys trying to do a project like mine, and uh, but all of them looking for money to pay for it, you know. But I couldn't wait. I had, I wanted to get mine done, and I did it. I, you know, I'm not gonna sit here. You know, no grass ever grew under my feet. I'm always moving. I'm, I'm gonna get something done. <laughs> Coco, I've loved listening to this. There's so much in it, and and I and I appreciate all the work you're doing there. And I I think we we'd be remiss we haven't. I don't think said the words vanishing paradise which is our campaign where we work on all kinds of stuff like this with lots of folks like yourself. So I wanted to at least get that in. It's Bill's, Bill's work. Lots yeah, of Bill's well, it is vanishing. Yeah. vanishing a whole lot slower than most of them. I, I've, I've taken hold of mine and took control. But mine was a piece of property that was easily doable. It just took the time and effort to do it. But yeah. I did all the work myself. I bought the machine. I maintained the machine. Me and my help, Sam Blasson, painted the machine. We changed the drive chains on it twice. I mean, running the machine is just a small part of it. Maintaining it is a big part. That's the most expensive piece of equipment I ran in my life was a marsh buggy excavator. It's, it's unbelievable what it costs to maintain. That piece of equipment, and mine's a small one, that machine will run a, rent with an operator about $250 an hour right now, which you rent for. And when, when they hire work to be done, they don't come with them my size. They come with bigger ones. So they rent for more money. But they get more more work done. They got bigger machines, get more work done. But it's it's been a learning experience, the whole deal. But I've learned a lot, you know, dealing with land. And, and But I'm very observant of what people are doing around me. I'm observant, looking at projects. And, and, and when I don't know, when I don't know the answer to something, I'm going to find out why. I'm going to say, why did you do this? What advantage with this? Why are you doing this? And and, and I've, I get a lot of people that, that, you know, call me now and ask me, what would you do here? Like I went, I, you know, I've gone several times. I looked at other people's property. I said, I'm no expert, but this is what I would do. And if, and if I have any doubts, 
And I'm going to call Bob Doom and bring him with me. I said, you come in with me. We're going to look at this guy's property, see if we can help him. And, you know, this is, I just do this just to help people because people have helped me. You know, I'm, you know, nobody can do everything on their own because nobody knows everything. And the more, more eyes you got looking at a project, the more ideas you can get, and you pick the best ideas, and that's what you go with. Well, what about for a regular Joe? I mean, let's let, let's wrap it up with this one. You know, if you're if you're regular Joe Jane down there in the swamp or around the region, and you want to help, you know, mitigate the issues of the the, vish, the vanishing delta down there, what's your what's your thoughts on how a regular guy can get involved? Well. Biggest thing is con- contributions to Ducks Unlimited, and, and you know I, I read a lot of things on how I ain't supporting Ducks Unlimited because they, they they spend money on rich man's property. <laughs> you know, like Hugh Bateman, who retired from Wild Officials, head of game division, and he went to work for DU after he retired from the state. And and that comment came up. He said, "You show me a poor man with some property, we'd be happy to do a project on his place." You know, and, and a lot of people that kind of resent the fact that DU is doing these projects on privately owned property, but they're what they're doing in Louisiana on privately owned property is saving the coast. You know, this wetland restoration, all these projects they're doing, you know, and what they've done, they used to fund them 100%, but they don't do that anymore. They'll do a cost share of like 15, 20%, depending on the project. What DU will do is get the landowner to kick in. He, he needs some skin in the game. It's not, it's not all a free deal. And to me, that's that's a better deal for everybody. You get you, you know, like on my property, I put I put the first conservation easement through DU in South Louisiana is on my piece of property. Ducks Unlimited got four hundred eighty thousand dollars of matching funds to spend on other projects in in the Chenier Plain region, not in my area. So they got that money and they built terrace levees on other properties with the matching funds they got from, from my donation of my easement. But everybody, I mean, they need to support support Ducks Unlimited is one thing, and everybody needs to support this diversion that, that, that the National Wildlife Federation is pushing for. We need this. We need this bad. And they got a lot of opposition to it. We've got some special interest groups that are not looking at the whole picture. They're looking through these blinders. They're looking at their spot and not looking at the whole big picture that's there that they need to see. And, that's and, and that's, where we that's, need. That's going to be we, a state's loss if this doesn't get done. We, we need people to speak up, that's, that's people exactly right. who care, to, because when those folks, those special interest folks are at a meeting or writing letters or emails or whatever, other people need to be there talking to. That's right. But not everybody has the knowledge and the vision. You know, you can see in a conversation we just had, I've been around a little while and I've learned a lot and I can understand what's happening because I have seen it happen. You know, I've seen the marshes degrading. I've, I've seen, I'm old enough. You know, a, a, a guy like a young duck hunter who's 25 years old, he hadn't lived long enough to see the things that I've seen. He doesn't have a clue to what's happening because he hadn't been there. And, and what I have seen and what I have experienced in my lifetime is, is, is you know, it shows the whole picture. And, and, and just like, you know, that, the book that, that I read, the, the Muskrat Tribe of Louisiana is a good book for somebody to read also. Because it, it goes into the history of trapping muskrats. There's also the evolution of how the state was formed and, and, and how everything's deteriorating. It's really a good book. Well, Coco, we're, we're going to let you go. We've been, we've been chatting for a good deal here. We appreciate your time. 
I'll give, uh, how about we give you and Bill one, one last chance to say any wise words and, and don't, don't overdo Bill here. Don't say something too wise to where he has nothing to say because we need, we need something from him too. We'll, we'll leave, we'll leave you first and let Bill sign off and then we'll let folks go. But thank you so much. Well, I'm glad you invited me to do this and I hope this kind of sheds light on the situation in Louisiana and Louisiana is a, is a nationwide issue. It's not just a Louisiana issue because of, you know, the industry, the seafood industry, the, the, the shipping industry, the farming industry, the alligator industry, that's a whole other thing we never got into. You know, we could talk hours on that, you know, and, and my experience with that, you know, alligator farming and eggs, you know, I'm neck deep into that. I don't own a farm, but I, I, I own eggs that get sold to a farm. So it's, you know, the coast of Louisiana is a nationwide issue. And, and, and everybody needs to understand that. Everybody needs to realize that. And hopefully we can bring a lot of people on board and understand that and, and get this diversion going and, and have more of them, not just this one. We need more of them. Yeah, and I, I, I love the fact you brought up it's a nationwide issue, and especially as duck hunters um, and, and even fishermen who just want to go to an iconic place like Venice, Louisiana, uh, the Mississippi Flyway, the Mississippi River, and that delta is integral to our, our sports. Uh, the trip to Washington, D.C. that we went on together, that Coco and I went on together, we had sportsmen from 19 different states there to meet with their congressmen in D.C. to support restoring the Mississippi River Delta in Louisiana. Uh, so people out there, if you're interested in learning more about it uh, and interested in trying to help out, you know, lending your voice, I'm not even talking about sending in money, you know, it's lending your voice or support get in touch with us at vanishingparadise.org and you know coco will be happy to talk to you too well awesome that's a good way to end it end it bill and i'll just say before we go too i i think of it as more than just even a sporting paradise i think of it as a a world treasure it's one of the most awesome deltas on the planet lots of wildlife lots of water fish everything else and it's just a special place we need to take care of and and thank you both for what you're doing there And with that, we'll let you go. So happy trails, gentlemen. We are NWF Outdoors.